Oh, Bretto. What's up, MP? Damo just called. Yeah? He thinks there's going to be 100,000 people at the Wellness Summit. Oh, again? He thinks we're bigger than Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles all put together. Damien Christoph has gone completely mad. Did you know he's made eight tonnes of forage? What? <laughs> and now he wants you and I to help him get rid of it. Oh, Damo. So, look, being the good friends that we are, we've asked him. You've been forced. Well, we've kind of twisted his arm to make him literally give his forage away to 100 lucky Wellness Summit attendees. So if you're ready to enrol for our signature two days of inspiration, education and empowerment and entertainment. What do you mean, MP? Australian Idol winner Wes Carr makes his Wellness Summit debut this year, Bretto. Wes Carr, you'll be guilty. So if you're ready to be entertained, head on over to thewellnesssummit.com and get four value bags of forage muesli or one bag each of paleo, muesli, bircher and porridge when you register. Now, all you need to do is register for this two-for-one special, bring a buddy, bring a friend, bring a family member or a colleague and then choose your forage selection, four muesli or four assorted and get four bags per attendee. That's eight bags per double pass. That's almost 250 bucks of forage for free when you register for the Wellness Summit on August 25-26 at the Collingwood Town Hall in Melbourne. That's 150 serves of breakfast. Almost six months of breakfast just for registering for the Wellness Summit. Well, it's first in best dressed. These 100 tickets are only available until June 18 or until sold out. All the details of this special offer, all the topics, featured speakers and more are over at thewellnesssummit.com. Thanks for making eight tons of forage, Damo. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And we're together! I know! Shut the front door! <laughs> In the same room. We are. It's almost unbelievable. Yeah. This would have to be our first podcast. In the same room together in what? Two years? Three years? Easily? Mm, it's been a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, the last podcast we did together, we were in New Zealand with all of our high Oh, yeah, we were too. Mm. And before that, it was, it's, it's been forever. Mm. It's I don't so even nice. remember. It's so good. Oh, it's the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an amazing guest joining us today. And it's kind of, you know, it's all very purposeful, you know, that we've got um, our gorgeous Divinia joining us today. Um, Davinia Glenn Denning is joining us. She's um, a psychologist specialising in neuroscience, which, you know, totes up my alley. So I'm really excited about having today's conversation. But I think it's actually quite fitting that, you know, we're all in the room together. We've got a neuroscientist on the other end of the call, a couple of nutters over this side, and someone that can keep it all together for us on the other side. So Davinia, welcome. Thank Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I hope I, I don't know if I can keep it together on this side, but hey, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> just commenting for all of our listeners, we were just commenting that we're all blonde and all 
quite gorgeous. Just like, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, quite fabulous. So we may all be led astray today. Let's just put it out there as a possibility, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I hope I could bring some new information. Anyway, lots of some of the things I might um, say might fill the gaps for some people. It might be completely new, but either way, um, I'm just excited to be able to share what I love. And we're really, really grateful to have you on the show. So, Cindy, you met Davinia. Yeah, it was it was Newcastle. um, Yeah, that we met. And what happens is that I'll do my talk, and there was well over a hundred and something people in Newcastle. And um, I'll do my talk, and then there'll be people that stop to to have a chat. And Davinia's friend actually wanted to ask a question, and and I don't know. um, I was quite taken with your friend, with what she had been through, and with what she was doing in her life. Um, And then I don't know. I asked you something and then I realised that you would be wonderful for our show and especially um, with Karen Smith because more often than not we do food and health and diet. We don't often do, you know, the stuff that you guys talk about all the time, you know, the neuroscience and the resilience and, and all of that. And I thought that it would be really nice for, for Karen to, to be the lead in this uh, as opposed to Kimmy and I. <laughs> Don't worry, I get my 20 cents in. Yeah. <laughs> she does, she does. So, Davinia, could you tell us, I'm really curious, because Cindy has been really excited about this interview, oh. could you give us a little background as to who you are and how you came to being here today? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I'm excited too, so that's really nice. Um, I, how did I came to be here today? Well, my background is really that I've just, been working as a psychologist now for about 14 years and over that time I've just slowly refined I guess my field and what I like doing and about eight years ago I ended up um, being in a workshop with who was my mentor currently my mentor and he started talking about how um, the neuroplasticity basically and how as psychologists we can help aid our clients to build these Um, positive neural networks and really for me for the first time I really felt like I was getting some real gutsy information on how I could really help other people and not just sit in a room and talk about cognitive changes and how they can change their thinking but really helping empower them and to understand how their brain does change and how they can play a role in changing it but I think the the vital piece for me was up until really that point, I I really believed I was who I was and I couldn't do a lot to change um, my capacity. So that was a, it was a really exciting moment in all fronts for me that I really walked out of that workshop feeling so relieved that I could actually make a difference not only in my client's life but it really started with me. And so I started on a really specific resilience journey in my world, um, really mapping out how I wanted my life to look and really taking one step at a time to build these healthy neural pathways and go on my own journey. And over that time, I just continued to work with this mentor of mine who was a neuroscientist and um, I've just fallen into some really wonderful, exciting projects and now travel um, 
Australia and New Zealand and teach psychologists about the resilience, um, neuroscience of resilience and work as a private psychologist and do and a few other little things as well. Um, but just I just love it. I just love it. I love it because I feel so passionate and so excited that as I'm working with my the individuals and my clients with other psychologists, I'm learning and growing myself at the same time. So all my worlds really I just continually merge together and I and I feel really grateful actually that I have fallen into an occupation and a career and a life that I get to continually adapt and grow. It's really exciting. You know, Divinia, you mentioned um, learning how to create positive neural pathways mm. and I think you've really hit a nail on the head there in that you kind of place yourself at the centre of the responsibility in terms of being able to create healthy neural pathways for yourself. Whereas I think if you put the question out to general society, most of them would kind of feel a little bit subject to their own um, experiences, their upbringing, you know, the whole nature versus nurture question. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, if they don't do the inner inquiry, they don't actually recognise that... Um, they're living through their own conditioning and Absolutely. an alternative is possible. And yeah. I to clarify for our listeners, what do you mean when you say create a positive neural pathway? I mean, how does Bill and Betty barbecue do that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I like it. I love um, Betty barbecue. They're my <laughs> So really in a number of ways. I mean, that's the amazing thing about our brain. Our brain changes through any type of sensory information. So that can be internal information, that can be external information. So as long as, as soon as we start thinking about things or we start visualising things or feeling, experiencing them in any way, it starts to shape our brain. Now our brain is continually evolving and adapting and, and changing regardless of whether we're aware of it or play a part in it or not. When my... Um, where it's helpful to know, though, is that you can your your brain is continually making new pathways, and it's also continually to breaking down pathways that we don't use anymore. So, from a practical point of view, if we're looking at how we can build positive neural pathways, we're doing that initial step that you were just talking about, which is self awareness. Who are, what's going on in my life, and what is it that I'm wanting to change, and literally. What would be the next step towards the the one thing that I want to start working towards? So the whole the brain likes to have really specific small steps of change. It doesn't like big astronomical um, visions that we have to leap and take these massive leaps of judgment. We need little tiny steps of um, change that our brain goes, okay, so this is a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit uncertain, but I know that I've got the resources or the support or the understanding of how I'm going to get to that step. And then you get to that step and you start to feel a little bit more comfortable in that step. An example might be if you were going to start exercising, the good old sporting analogy, they're always nice, 
is if you want to start going to the gym but you're really fearful of um, getting fit or you didn't know if you could financially afford it, how as a mother I work with a lot of mums, how can I get out of the house, um, what will I wear, etc, etc. It's really looking at, look, I want to get to the gym one time a week. The next step for me would be having a conversation with my family. And that conversation would be around my desire and how are we going to enable this as a family and, and, and how do I get that, not necessarily the support, but how do I make sure that I've got the time slot in my timetable to do that. And then once that's done, it's looking at the next step. So when's the next available day that I can do it, et cetera, et cetera. So positive, building neural positive, positive neural pathways, it can mean, Gosh, it's endless. It's really about deciding what it is that you want to achieve and just actively shuffling forward towards whatever that is. Is that, is that specific enough? Very. Here's <laughs> <laughs> a question. I, I, I was listening to you talking like that, Davinia, and I realised I don't think like that. Aha. Uh -huh. Is that a problem? <laughs> how, do you, how do you think if I'm going to the gym I'm going to the gym it's a decision yeah. but that, that's because yeah. it's already a neural pathway in that's, right. that's what I want to know yeah. but, yeah, but right. even still if I'm going to do yeah what I would love to know is if I want to say I want to do a detox yeah right and and I wanted to actually go and do something like that then that might take a little bit more thought, but for me, it's very, yeah, I'm going to do that I'm, and I'm starting on, my, actually, I'm going to start tomorrow. Yeah. So I kind of go, I'm all or nothing. Is that typical or is that just unusual? No, I, look, I think as human beings, the most amazing thing about us is every single one of us are different and all of our lives present differently and what we enjoy is different and what we find easy and enjoyable is different. And so what I'm hearing from you is that, you already have some really resilient pathways in place, particularly from what you're saying around health. So similar to me, like health is not something that I have to consider. Health is just something that I do. And it's, and it's, to me, it's sort of a tick on the board all the time. That's done. I don't need to put my energy there. But when it comes to um, doing my accounts and financially being on top of things like that, I will avoid it till the cows come home. I hate it. I detest it. I've really got to put systems in place that remind me to do it. I've got to force myself to look at those figures. And um, so it, that area for me isn't set up well because I haven't set it up well. I haven't, I haven't um, enhanced the... Um, I haven't got the systems in well enough that I enjoy it or not that I might enjoy it but that it's seamless. So when it comes to health and the fact that you enjoy you enjoy it and you repeat it and you engage in it so easily it says to me that you do gain something from it. Divinia, can I just clarify something here that might kind of uh, give a bit of direction on this too? It's there's a distinction between um, a neural pathway that has been laid down for you know many years, obviously. Yeah wires really well together and you know obviously for somebody like Kimmy we'll use you as an example. Go on because I know you're going to take this somewhere you shouldn't. <laughs> Here's what we prepared earlier. <laughs> Exhibit A. <Jen. laughs> but she's 
found amazing neural pathways laid down around her own self-discipline. Yeah. She comes from a very athletic background and so discipline for her in whatever she sets her mind to do. Like if she tells herself she's doing something, she's doing it. And it's, it's not really whether it's running or the gym or her book work as much as she would hate to have to do that, but she'll still do it because she's got the neural pathway around discipline. Yeah. Perhaps a distinction is willpower. And yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if, if you know, when it comes to the contrast of willpower versus neural pathway, you know, willpower is probably the beginning of where a person would lay down a new uh, neural pathway. But, you know, you really can't go anywhere with willpower unless interest is present. Yeah, and, I mean, that, there's a lot in that particular thing that you're saying because the reality is will willpower is sort of one of these phenomena that have expanded in its um, notoriety to some degree and what willpower really is in neurological terms is what we call um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor which is BDNF it's our brain steroid which is the it's the thing, the chemical that allows um, neurogenesis, so our synapses, our um, cells, our neural part, new neural pathways to be formed, and BDNF runs out. So there's only a certain amount that we have per day. Now, there's some things that can grow and produce this BDNF and help you support this BDNF, and those three things happen to be sleep, exercise, and wool movement, I like to say, sleep movement and nutrition. So willpower is really saying that you have um, competently used your brain resources throughout the day. Now, where this becomes complicated is that's really saying that you have been a, you're a resilient person and that you've been able to adequately um dictate where you need to put your energy throughout the day so that it's not zapped all in one place, but you've been able to spread out your brain resources throughout the day so that you have the capacity to continually delegate it to and dedicate it to new tasks. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does make sense. And I'm interested in <laughs> what I'm fascinated in now, though, is Let's say if I wanted to create and do, okay, I'm going to give you an example. Yeah. Cindy is trying to always get me into the ocean to swim. Uh-huh. Now, is this because I don't want to do it or could I create enough willpower that would create a new brain drive neurotropic factor <laughs> to do it. Um, where it would change? Can you change that? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's lots of um, the, the, okay, let me try and unpack that question. So, so in order for you to start a new behaviour like going into the ocean, the main thing that we need to do, this brings in, I hope I'm not making this too complex because we're now going into another brain chemical, which, oh, no, which, which you probably heard of is dopamine. Have you ladies heard of our beautiful dopamine chemical? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So dopamine's our pleasure chemical. Now people tend to think that, um, what happens is when when we feel pleasure, dopamine is produced in our brain and what that chemical purpose is is for our brain to say, oh, that felt good, so I'm now motivated to repeat this process. 
Now when we repeat processes, that's when we really lay down new neural pathways and they become strengthened over time. So dopamine is our motivating chemical to continue to repeat things over and over and over again so we can actually form new habits and behavioural systems. Now, so when you're starting to go into the ocean and you don't really she like it. <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> she hates it, Davinia. You hate it. And, that's the, and this is the thing. So I would sit with you and discuss the hate first to find out where the hate comes from, what it's associated with. So do you have a fear? Like do you have a phobia around going to the ocean? Did something happen? Um, all of those things I'd want to know first. Exactly. And, and often I think, I honestly believe with you, and I'm agreeing with you, that things like that start out as a fear. You know, I thought my sister was going to drown one day and I had to save her in a big tire. And I've been dumped by waves at Malulabar Beach when Cindy told me it was incredibly safe. She's also told me to swim with her. I got dumped at Malulabar. <laughs> I can't see that. You get dumped. You do get dumped. They're bad. They're bad. They're, They're dumpers. Bad. And then one day she told me that, they saw a shark while they were out there swimming. Oh, yeah, that's she said, Don't worry about it because it was down the back. And I thought, well, how does a shark know that you're at the back and where I would be? Where I would be. Yeah, that's scary. I have to say, I have a big fear. I grew up in the ocean too and I do have a big fear of the um, sharks swimming by me one day and taking me out, even though I know it's low probability. But given that too, though, what I didn't say with the dopamine was that if even – just because we feel pleasure doesn't mean it's helpful for us. So, for example, when you were swimming in the ocean when you were younger and you saw um, your sister nearly drown, is that right? Is that what you said? I'm sorry. Yes. I was getting trouble in the ocean. And then the next time you went to the ocean and you felt fear and anxiety about going in and you thought, oh, you know what, I don't think I really need to swim in the ocean anymore, mm. and you hopped out, you would have felt a sense of relief and that panic and that anxiety would have dissipated a little bit. Now, what happens then is your brain also releases dopamine because you're feeling a sense of pleasure from avoiding the activity. Yeah. So dopamine not also, isn't just important in setting up good new habits. It's also part to play in any habit formation that we have and any associations that we have. So each time you avoided the ocean or you went to get in and then you got out and you sent, sent, got that relief again and you drove away and thought, oh, my God, I'm never going back to the ocean. The dopamine is just continuing to teach our brain that that activity isn't something that I feel safe doing, so I don't need to repeat that anymore. So for you to go back to the ocean and start swimming again, it would be a really small, minute desensitisation program essentially where you're literally just getting to the sand and learning to be mindful and meditate on the sand and learning to feel the sand and then you'd just be slowly, gradually going into the ocean but each time making sure that we pair dopamine production with each of those steps so your brain is building new neural pathways of what we call in sight terms of approach behaviours which means that you're actually actively putting in place helpful behaviours that will help you become a resilient human being, not avoidance behaviours, which is running away from things that are scary and not necessarily harmful to you, but you've learnt to perceive them in that way. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I actually find that fascinating <laughs> because you, you've just nailed it on, on the head. <laughs> 
you know, for me, it's the most pleasurable thing that I do in my life every single morning and, and I have this routine. But moving on um, from the swimming, if it's okay if I ask a question. Yes, I With um, one of the programs that I um, have on the four-phase fat loss, uh, it's called on changing habits, it's called the four-phase fat loss, people do really well on it because it's disciplined, they know that they've got to do it, they do it for a period of time. But this is the comments I always hear from people. I did really well, Cindy, I lost all the weight, I felt better, I was feeling amazing, and then life got in the way. So I was stressed at work. Um, my, my kids were giving me whatever. Um, I couldn't, you know, it, life got in the way. They all say it. And I'm like going, how do we help people make these changes for good in their life? And I'm, I, I was getting a crux of it with the water and Kimmy. But this to me is, uh, you know, this causes failure for people to stay doing the right things such as movement and, and exercise and um, eating and meditation and setting up your day well or whatever it is that you, you have to do. What, what does it take to make somebody change? Um, I, I guess it's a step-by-step, but, yeah. Sorry, yeah, you keep going. Sorry, Davinia, I was just saying to Cindy, is there emotional eating caught up in that as well? You know, like people can be disciplined for a certain period of time but then you know the emotional triggers come back and then they're using food to comfort themselves yeah and that's the, i mean it, the reality there could there who knows like the reality is who knows what's going on there it could be in a multitude of factors that are triggering them but essentially what it sounds like is happening is they're siloing their health process and what i mean by that is in that particular instance, they've been able to block out the time frame of that program and they've put in the structure around that protein and the routines of how they're going to fulfill this eight-week program and they've been able to prioritise it in that time frame. But as soon as they finish that time frame, that silo of discipline is removed and they're no longer capable of um, integrating those habits into their lifestyle. And it's really what, what I talk about on a day-to-day basis with my clients about being resilient, isn't about being resilient as a parent, isn't about being resilient as a community member or a career person at work. To be resilient means that you have to be able to implement the system of building these new neural pathways, of creating brain health in every area of your life. And if we just create it in one area of our life, it doesn't necessarily mean that our brain has the capacity to integrate it across everything. Although it's helpful to start in one area and then generalise and and expand on that. But if people think that um, the change and the situation has to occur under those specific rules, they then sort of um, self-sabotage to think that unless those parameters are there, they can no longer fulfil the requirements. Does that, does that make any sense at all, Cindy? Oh, most, most definitely. Oh, and good. Then, Karen often says this. She talks like you call it the silo. Yeah. It's a wall on either side of you. So nothing happened before and nothing's happened after. Yeah. You're just in that wall of the silo. And yeah. I, I quite like the silo. Hmm. At Absolutely. first, I wasn't quite sure what you were saying in Karen. Yeah, sure. Sorry. I do that a lot. <laughs> you were saying I, I, 
lots of words that I know. I know exactly what I'm talking about and no one else does. <laughs> I think that goes for all of us. <laughs> yes. um, I, wanted, I heard Dr. Libby on the weekend speaking to Vinia and she yep. talked about this where, where you go and make a food choice that isn't right for you. It is based on an occurrence that would have occurred in your childhood that you now need to constantly need to refeed or refuel or comfort. And it's usually based around comfort and it's triggered by fear. That was her assumption on anything to do with doing something that sabotaged your health and wellness. How would you describe that? Yeah, I would describe um, emotional eating is that, a, what, is that what you're saying, talking about yeah. emotional eating specifically? I so, think, yeah, because of people... going to a particular food, I guess. Well, she was talking about how people, like Cindy just said, you can be eating really well, you can be doing really well, and then for some reason something happens. It's usually, she believes, emotionally triggered, which yeah. is where I think Karen um, has a lot of um, information around, but it is emotionally triggered by something, and the reason why we can't heal it is because we've not gone after the work on what is that trigger. And yeah. often it can be something that actually occurred in our childhood that we have put meaning on, which may not even be the truth, but it was a perception of something that occurred when we were younger that then is triggered into something with comfort. Karen, you'd explain it so much better than me. But that was... No, 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 that makes, that, I understand what you're saying. I'm completely and, and absolutely, the reality is we can develop emotional eating patterns at any point in our life, though. So it doesn't have to be from childhood, but certainly... They can often start in childhood um, and particularly when we're um, nurtured and there's a lot more brain um, neuroplasticity happening in childhood. So, but I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to just expand on this a little bit, but the end of the day it comes back to that dopamine thing too as well, as well as serotonin that our brain loves to eat... um, you know, this beautiful balance of fat and sugar and it has a serotonin enhances our serotonin production which is our um, mood chemical that makes us feel happier and it's enhanced when we're eating those types of foods. Now when we eat those types of foods too our brain also recognizes that we feel great. So it, it produces more dopamine which means we're more motivated to do it again. Now we all know when we eat fats and sugars to that quantity we then have a beautiful sugar low and we go on this mood roller coaster where we're going up and down. But the dominating force of that um, dopamine production, that habit formation plus the serotonin production means that we want to go back and experience that emotional, um, that whole full emotional experience when we associate it with eating that food. Can I ask you a question then on that? If the body is constantly trying to keep itself in homeostasis, if the body is so resilient and so amazing when you think about all the things that we do to it, why then does the body say that eating fat and sugar together feels so... Why do we release a hormone or a a, a neurotransmitter that says that felt good even though that's against really constitutionally what the body actually wants or needs? I... Like, I wish that I had that answer because if I did, I reckon I'd be able to make huge changes (laughs) in our health systems around that. And I don't know if there is an answer. I certainly don't know the answer to that. 
I, yeah, like if we have a look at our, and I, I, I put this on in the, I put this in my talk in Newcastle, but I do put a lot of things in the talk. But yeah, one of the things that we do know is that in the summer we would have eaten a lot of fat because we would have fat, eaten fat animals or animals that had lots of um, produce with lots of fat in it, and we would have also eaten sweet fruits. So yeah. the natural component of the natural fats and the natural sugars. Um, we want, we needed to eat them in order to put fat on our body to survive a winter. So that's my belief is that I feel that that fat and sugar was vital for our, um, survival. Yes. You're right. We needed it for survival. Yeah. You know, I'd like, I'd like to take another tact if that's okay. Sure. In May this year. So after I, um, met you, um, you went and, um, you ran two workshops at the International Conference of Neuropsychotherapy. Yeah. One of your topics was the neuroscience of sleep. So I'd, I'd love to talk to you about, um, you know, the importance of sleep in all of this neuroplasticity that we're talking about and how do we change, you know, what fires together, wires together. How is sleep helping with that notion? Sure. I think um, I I just love talking about sleep, by the way, so you may have to cut me off. <laughs> um, or if I say something that doesn't sound right either, please ask for clarification because I just jump a million miles ahead. But the reality is that for a long time now, people have believed that sleep is where we go to rest, that our brain rests and recharges and we really, not a lot happens. And what we now know, well, they've known now for, a while is that actually at times when we're sleeping our brain is 30 percent more active than what it is during the during the day and there's so many processes that happen at night time that don't happen at all during the day and it's because of our sleep and our capacity for our brain to restore and repair and grow and adapt is capable because we sleep and so for us to continue to evolve as human beings and for us to have evolved as human beings, it has been possible because of our ability to sleep. That's amazing. So that, that, the, the sleep is part of our evolution. It's huge. And we all, like, obviously as human beings, we've had to have slept along the way. But I think the most fascinating thing for me is that we are one of the most efficient sleepers well we are the most efficient sleepers that we know of in um in the animal world and because of that efficiency we are capable of you know having such amazing brain development and physical capacity and so i don't know how much you want me to talk about with sleep but there's two there's lots of different yeah, I really um because we have one non sleeper in the room. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and this is and this is hard. Look, I'm gonna um it is hard to hear some of the sleep science because um it is all geared towards us getting eight hours of sleep, you know, seven or eight hours of sleep is what we believe is the optimal amount of sleep for our our um, optimal brain health and after that once we minimize it we really start seriously affecting our health in so many ways now if I just talk to you about what sleep looks like it gives you a little bit of insight of what it does there's um, 
when we when we sleep, there's different stages of sleep. So when we're we're literally going in to close our eyes, we're dropping into stage one, then we drop down into stage two, stage three, and stage four, non-REM sleep. Now, stage three and stage four are our deepest sleep that we have. Then after stage four, we come up into a lighter sleep, which we call rapid eye movement sleep, or most people know as REM sleep, which is our um, dream state sleep. And that one, two, three, four in REM sleep is what we consider one sleep cycle. Now, we should be having five of them in a night, hence why. Oh, so one of those sleep cycles goes for about 90 minutes. And so we want to have five of them ideally in a night. But that gives us about seven to eight hours we want to be actually engaged in the sleeping process. Now, the importance of this is... Um, I wish I could give you a little picture in front, but I'll try and describe you this as best as I can. But stage one, two, three, and four, which we know as non-REM sleep, it actually dominates the first half of our sleep cycle. So for the first three to four hours in the night, we're doing we're in mostly non-REM sleep, and the second half of the night we're mostly in REM sleep. And the significance of this is is that the non-REM sleep helps um, prune our brain and get rid of the neural pathways and identify what we no longer require as necessary. We, may, um, we just see that we no longer need these systems and so the brain goes about making sure that it allocates the um, adaption and removal and pruning of those systems and the REM system is about getting the new information and blending it with our old um, systems of memories. So we start to develop a new world view. So each time we sleep, we're blending the information from the day with what we have already experienced, what we already remember, what we already know. And how that happens is through the state of dreaming. Um, and I can, I can keep talking about this forever. I'm just hoping that I'm not talking out of way. It's too complicated. No, no, no it's, it's absolutely perfect. Okay, good. So in the, in the best way that I like to think about this, a really beautiful analogy that an amazing sleep researcher, Matthew Walker, um, gives, is that he talks about, think about that a big lump of clay has been wheeled in front of you and the clay represents new and old memories. Now, in order for this big lump of clay to be turned into a sculpture of any kind, we have to start by removing all the excess clay. So we've got to cut off all the big chunks of clay that we know we don't really need. So we do a big culling session and cutting off the excess clay, and then we sort of give some attention to what sort of shape we think this will end up looking like. So if it was a bird, for example, we sort of have an indication of where we need to slow down our culling and where we can take more clay from a different area. The areas that are being culled is like our non-REM sleep. So when we go into non-REM sleep, our brain is identifying, cutting off and culling all that excess um, debris. And then we go into REM sleep, it's that refining message, um, method of refining this 
model and sculpture. So for the first half of the night, we're doing mostly culling. We're doing a little bit of refining. And then as we get to the second half of the night, we no longer need to cull as much. We need to mostly refine this sculpture and make it into that bird that we want it to look like. We're still culling a tiny little bit, but most of our attention is making this bird refined. And so that's our process. Sorry, did I interrupt? No, no, no. no I just thought we lost you. You're good. No. So that's just our, um, that's how I like to remember the process of sleep. Now, it becomes a little bit trickier because there's different times in those stages of sleep where um, we have more culling and we have more refinement. For example, in the last two hours of our sleep, um, a lot of our motor memory systems are really refined in that final two hours. And, and for particularly, you can imagine for athletes and um, just people that are needing to refine motor systems, physical adaption, um, physical movement, they often cut off those final two hours of sleep because they need to get up early to train, they need to get up early to go to the gym or they, they feel like they need to get up early to um, physically start to move in whatever shape, way, shape or form. And so in that actual fact, they're cutting off the most vital moment where their brain is actually solidifying that motor memory system. So there's little things like that throughout the night that we can we can affect in so many ways without understanding and knowing what we're doing. And for a lot of people, they think that if they just modify their sleep a little bit by cutting a couple of hours off at the beginning or particularly at the end by waking up early to go to the gym. You know, I'm an avid gym runner and um, if I was to go to bed at 12 o'clock at night, I know that I've given up my opportunity to go to the, for a run in the morning unless I go later in the day because I'm not, I, I know the ramifications of cutting off those final two hours. I'm not just cutting off, you know, 20% of my sleep in actual fact. I'm cutting off, you know, more like 60% of my REM sleep and I'm severely affecting some of my non-REM sleep. So we can't really just, um, you know, have that, we can if we want to, but in my mind, um, it just helps you to be really empowered about the importance of having that dedicated sleep time. And in my passion, it's not about um, that you have to have seven or eight hours sleep, but the important thing is you're giving yourself the opportunity to sleep for seven or eight hours because as busy, busy people, particularly as a mum of young kids, it's so easy to say, oh, the kids are down now, so I'm going to stay up and have me time, which is something that I hear from mums all the time, is, well, the kids are finally down, it's 8 o'clock, so now I've got three or four hours where I get to do my thing. And so they go into this terrible sleep cycle habit where they stay up late, they get up early, they feel exhausted the next day, which affects their emotional capacity, which we know that... Um, REM sleep has a huge, um, a huge influence on our ability to be emotionally um, resilient and for our frontal lobes to communicate 
effectively with the rest of our brain. Our frontal lobes are our reasoning areas, our thinking areas, and without access to that area of our brain and that being in full force, we're really um, affecting our capacity to make great decisions throughout the day, and hence it affects what we eat, it affects what we do, it affects our relationships, and and you can just see how it's a complete flow-on effect then. For the end of the day, feeling lousy, going to bed stressed, and stress has a severe effect on our ability to sleep and go through all these cycles naturally. We might feel like we need a bit of a wine to calm down, which inhibits our REM sleep. Um, and it just goes on and on. But I really believe, I don't think we're educated in sleep as individuals. I think there's a real belief out there that you just put your head on the pillow and it should just happen and it's not really that important. If you get it, it's great. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, what you do during the day is much more important. And it's, to me, it's a little bit scary that um, so much happens, but yet we, we really know nothing about it. You know, in the next, um, we've only got 20 minutes left, believe it or not. And in that time, I have two more questions for you. Yeah. And I think the most important question will probably be the last, um, which is we want tips. Um, yeah, beautiful. We're going to want that. But I think the question before that is that, like, I have a 90-year-old father. And he does a lot of sleeping, you know. He sleeps in front of the television. He sleeps in front of the table. He's dinner. He sleeps. Uh, he sleeps well. He says he never gets up, but I have slept in the same room as him, and he does. He gets up to go to the loo. Yeah. Can you briefly um, talk about um, you know when we're fired up, twenty to forty, fifty year olds? <laughs> yeah. We still need that seven to eight hours sleep. Have we made that in the early parts of our life and at the end of our life? And is it just an average or do we have to do, we have to do it now? One of the, I think one of, the, one of the many misconceptions about sleep out there is that as we age, we need less sleep. I hear that all the time. And that comes from you seeing a lot of older people not sleeping, excuse me for that, um, going to bed early but waking really early or they just don't sleep as many hours during the night. Now, in order to answer this question, I've just got to vary off for a second. So if I ask you why was I saying this, please remind me where I left off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's two other systems that are really important in our sleep. One of them being our circadian rhythm, which you may or may not have heard of, and that's our natural um, systems within our body that just help indicate and help us to um, actively go into this state of sleep. So what that means is naturally um, every day over 24 hours our body systems follow a particular procedure being one, for example, being our core temperature. So whether we sleep or not, our core temperature will continue to rise up until the early um, evening and then it will start to go down with the purpose that our core temperature is a real key communicator to our sympathetic nervous system to start winding down and having the capacity to go into this restful sleep state. Now, there's a lot of things circadian rhythm dominates is our desire to eat, um, our 
how much we urinate, um, when we wake up in the morning, when we feel like going to sleep at night. Now, you would have heard of the chemical melatonin, I, I imagine. And melatonin is the thing that communicates um, to our circadian rhythm. So melatonin doesn't act in the... Um, pro, doesn't, so melatonin pulls all of our brain regions together and says, come to the starting line of sleep. This is Get ready for the sleep race. Everyone get ready. We're about to go to sleep. Melatonin is literally saying to our brain, it's dark, it's dark, get ready. But it doesn't then participate in, this, in the actual process of sleep. The sleep race is down to the capacity for all of these brain regions to actually do its job and the body temperature to go down, the sympathetic nervous system to deactivate, um, and a number of other things to occur. Now, to complicate things, just to highlight that, so our circadian rhythm happens over 24 hours and rises and falls every 24 hours, whether we sleep or we don't sleep. That just happens. Now, there's another system alongside our circadian rhythm that's called our adenosine system. The adenosine is our sleep chemical and what it does is it starts to be produced from the moment that we wake and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until we go to sleep and it's our sleep urge. So as it builds, the higher it gets, the greater urge we have to sleep. So by the evening, that whole intense urge to go to sleep is a combination of the circadian rhythm systems being activated, but also this adenosine chemical. Now, you can imagine with the elderly, what's happening with their circadian rhythm for you and I, for um, the average adult, our circadian rhythm is naturally starting to tick into place around 9 p.m. at night, which means that all of our systems are starting to get ready to go to sleep. Sleep when we're starting to feel that urge to actually lie down and participate in this great sleep race. <coughs> I'm sorry, ladies, I've got this tickle. You got some water there? Yes, just having a gulp. Yeah, um, have a gulp. We'll just chat for a while while you have a gulp. So, the adenosine, I just wanted to um, clarify while you're drinking your water. Yeah. The adenosine system is. is is that a lot to do with adenosine triphosphate, the energy, our energy unit? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. That's exactly right. And so for, um, so with the circadian rhythm, when we're ageing, our circadian rhythm slips back and it mimics more of what it does when we're younger. So we're tired earlier on in the evening. Um and so you just have to think about a two-year-old, a five-year-old, how they're tired earlier on and they can't, don't have that capacity even if they want to stay up. They fall asleep on the couch anyway. An old elderly person has that same circadian setup. So they're tired early in the evening, but what happens is they don't, they don't want to be going to bed at that time. So we're talking about 5, 5.36, they're set to go to bed. And in the early afternoon, their adenosine is building, building, and this urge to go to sleep is just getting greater and greater. And so they often have this nap, and they have this nap on the couch, and what that does is it resets their adenosine urge, and it diminishes. So they no longer have this desire by the time it comes to 5.30, 6 o'clock to go to sleep. So they stay up later, 
And then they engage in, um, you know, four or five hours sleep and their circadian rhythm is waking back up again. And so they wake early in the morning. They're not getting a full night's sleep. But what happens is we then have an adenosine debt. So it, we need eight hours of sleep during the night, approximately, for the adenosine to um, diminish and come back down to the place where you need it to start building again for the next day. If our brain hasn't processed all of that adenosine, we wake up with an adenosine debt and we, we're tired when we wake up and we then are starting to accumulate adenosine on top of adenosine. And a lot of people will fix that with caffeine, um, the good old coffee, Coffee binds to the same receptors as our adenosine. So our adenosine is blocked essentially when we drink caffeine and we no longer have that ability to feel that urge of sleepiness. But once that caffeine um, is starting to be um, um, take, I'm lost the word now, taken in, processed, um, then the receptors are back open again for the adenosine to flood in. Now, the problem being is adenosine never stops, <laughs> never stops being produced. So not only do we have adenosine from before we had the cup of coffee, so we already had a debt, we now have all of the adenosine that we built up whilst the caffeine was covering our receptors. And so we have this huge caffeine crash that we call and the adenosine floods in. Okay. And so with the elderly, sorry, I sidetracked a little bit there. With the elderly, what you find is they tend to just have this repetitive pattern of not sleeping well at night time but feeling really tired throughout the day. And so it's not that they don't need or then um, they don't need the eight hours sleep. It's generally that they're... Um, not capable of getting a full night's sleep, not only because of the circadian rhythm and adenosine systems, but also the rest of the system, such as their bladder control and other things that happen in old age that affect their capacity to stay asleep. Uh, I have so many questions for you because I'm like going through motherhood and yeah. all of these things, but we're, we're coming to a close and I really think it would be lovely if you give us some tips on, you know, what do you do for someone who's a bad sleeper? And so Kimmy's a bad sleeper. We're back to Kimmy again. Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen, when well, we say bad sleeper, I just have six hours. I'm depriving myself of the other two, obviously, <laughs> the most important two. But I've tried. I, I can't tell you the last time I had an eight-hour sleep. And, I mean, there's lots of things that could be happening. The reality is that there's not many of us. There's a very, very small percentage, and some sleep scientists say the percentage is so small that if you round it to the nearest number, it would be zero, that require less than seven to eight hours of sleep. Um, it's just that we... <laughs> Sorry, that's harsh, I know. <laughs> the interesting thing is Cindy and Karen... We can say the word sleep and they're nearly gone. Yeah, how beautiful. I'm not like gone that. for 10 hours. Yeah. I, I, and I'm not, I don't say this with the fact that I'm a, 
awesome sleeper. I'm not an awesome sleeper. I have to set up my habits for sleeping. And, you know, those habits are making sure that I don't have caffeine after 11 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock preferably. Um, I wouldn't have any more than two cups at a maximum. Um, that I'm exercising earlier on in the day, not late in the day. And for the reason for that being that we want our sympathetic nervous system to be turned down to our stress response. We don't want our body to be any heightened um, protective response. We want it to be calm and relaxed. And, and so it's better to be exercising earlier on or at least not no later than two to three hours before bedtime. It's more important that we're getting up in the morning at a set regular time than it is to be going to bed at a regular time. So it really starts with setting up your circadian rhythm starts with getting up at a particular set time in the morning so that then you have the capacity for your systems and your brain to slowly adapt over time to build this urge to sleep in the evening. And look, um, none of this, I know none of this is easy. I think it's, I think it's fascinating that um, sleep is one of those things that we can't just decide to do and it will happen. It doesn't matter how much willpower or how much we talk to ourselves or how much we know it's helpful. It doesn't change our ability and our capacity to engage in sleep. So it's about just setting up the most amount of habits that we can to be supportive and one of them being allowing yourself at least, I say if you want eight hours of sleep, you should be giving yourself at least eight and a half hours time in bed. Um, if you're a bad sleeper, then um, maybe a little bit more and just setting up some systems to get into that restful state as you're lying horizontally before you close your eyes and actually want to engage in that process. Um, some other things, sorry. I, I think um, what's amazing is, um, you know, living. we live in Queensland um, and we don't have daylight savings. And so the, the sunlight comes up at, 4.30 in the summer and then it doesn't come up till after 6.30 in the winter. And I find it fascinating because in the summer I'm always awake at 4.30, but in the summer, in the winter, I I barely make 6 a.m. It's like 6, 6.10 and I want to be in the water at 6.30. So um, I don't set an alarm though. I, I find yeah. my body is so used to that's the time you get up, you don't have to set an alarm. Even last night... Uh, and I realised why I didn't sleep last night um, because I had coffee late. Oh. <laughs> and I was thinking, why can't I get to sleep? Usually I hit the pillow, I'm gone, that's it. Uh, but last night I realised when you said after 11, well, I had a, my last coffee at 12.30 and I usually only have one. So thank you for that habit hit, hint. <laughs> that's it, you're welcome. Yeah. And the other thing with sunlight, although sunlight isn't our only thing that sets our circadian rhythm to reset each day, it's one of the key indicators that sort of reminds our um um, our brain and, and resets that circadian clock so that in that evening time we really do have those systems set up ready to turn off and go into that slumber. So given that the sunlight comes up earlier, it really sets that clock to be feeling sleepier earlier in the evening. <coughs> Kim, so, so Devania, do you? What are your rituals? You you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you actually have trained yourself to do rituals. What do they look like? Um, really, it's about I don't go to bed until I'm tired. So 
being your bedroom really should just be about having um, a sl being sleep. You can read in your bed, but I wouldn't do anything else. And you can have your passionate um, time with your partner in your bedroom, but you can't have any, well, you shouldn't be doing anything else to invigorating in there purely for allowing your brain to associate that area with um, sleep. And so when we walk into our bedroom, we're setting up that habit that our brain is really identifying and associating, oh, I get to calm down now, I get to lie down and participate in this sleep process. So I really try and stay down in my lounge room until I'm ready to go up and read a few pages of my book before I turn my light. I really make sure I don't exercise after 5 p.m. at night time. And ideally, I exercise in the morning. Um, really trying to get some sunlight in the morning when I wake up and go outside and um, do some grounding tasks and really, you know, just getting in touch with um, our, um, our natural surroundings and things like that. Um, I really try to avoid alcohol at night time for most days of the week and just allow myself a couple of days on the weekend to have that um, social time. Um, avoiding large meals at night time. I try not to have too big a meal because it can set my um, systems up to be really struggling to process all of that food as I'm going to sleep. And I try not to nap during the day. But even sometimes, you know, sometimes we just need a nap. And as long as I nap before 3 p.m., then we're okay. Actually, I find that interesting about the napping um, because I, if I nap, I'm up all night. Yeah. yeah, and that adenosine, that adenosine's been, you know, burnt down. And so you don't have that urge anymore. And for some people, they're more receptive. Their system of, of, um, of burning that adenosine is different. It's just, you know, same with caffeine. Uh, we all are, are able to um, have different enzymes to be able to break that caffeine down in a different way. Some of us are more sensitive to us than others, and it's just understanding what it looks like for you. Yeah. Divinia, question super quick. Yeah. We've spoken about Kimmy. I just, you know, <laughs> so just, just, just on that. Now, for all the mothers out there, yes, I do get that you'll probably hate me after this, but just, 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 you know, it's just, Personal. <laughs> so I'm in bed by quarter past half past eight, religiously every night, even when I go out partying. <laughs> she leaves <Yeah>. early. That's <laughs> well like me. In the afternoon, so that Kaz can come. <laughs> but you know, I'm I'm a shut duck by eight p.m. So I'm in bed, and then I wake up. You know, somewhere between sort of, you know, 7 to 8 o'clock in the wintertime and in the summertime, anywhere between 6 and 7, you know, and I'm out like a light the most of the night. And then occasionally, like if I have a really strenuous day, I'll head for a nap. But then I'll go to bed at 8.30 and I'll sleep like a baby again. Yeah, beautiful. I, and, and that's the thing we're all... Is, that, is she spending not a third of her life asleep and <laughs> half of it? <laughs> Pretty much, and that's great. I say the more sleep you get, the better. There's not, uh, there's no research to say that um, 
there's too much sleep is detrimental but obviously oh. it becomes it becomes so much that you're not engaging in life and meeting people and making relationships and experiencing new things and that's detrimental but if it allows you to live a rich and fulfilled life at the same time I say go for it okay then all right, well, I just want to make sure that it wasn't <laughs> too much sleep. And, and you should see her. She doesn't have a wrinkle on her face. Nice. Oh, a wrinkle on her face. Exhausted, <laughs> dried skin. <laughs> detox. Um, so do you use anything in particular? Do you suggest supplementing with something like melatonin? Or adding? Uh, no, I don't suggest supplementing with melatonin for most people. Um, Melatonin can be helpful when you're traveling. It can help you sort of reset your brain's ability to catch up with the new time zone. But even then, it still doesn't necessarily put you into sleep, but it can just help um, convince your brain, so to speak, that it's time to go to bed. But it really takes an hour. Each day, your circadian rhythm can reset by an hour. So each time you're in a different time zone, it's still going to take, time for you to readjust and not have that jet lag um so no not i i don't but look there's lots of people that do that's just my opinion i don't think uh, there's a although there's a, one of the biggest placebo effects is melatonin that people take melatonin and they believe it's going to work and it does work purely from a cognitive level rather than um it actually doing anything so if you do take it and it helps, you know, I don't know of any side effects or negativity to taking melatonin, but I've always, always been told by a neuroscientist that um, there's, there's no free meals and he means that is that whatever you put into your system will have an effect in some way, shape or form. And so keeping it as natural as possible is obviously the... Um, the ideal scenario i just think if you can keep it to behavioral tips then to me that's the way to go but you know it, I, keep in mind that i'm i don't have severe sleep issues so some people are just really needing to hold on to the belief that something will help them and if it does then that is good and, and Dr. Libby was talking lots about the fact that um, heat can be a thing that wakes us up in the night. Yeah. So um, for a lot of women in particular that are menopausal or postmenopausal, they can still struggle with the heat, which then she brought back to the fact that the liver is not detoxifying properly because the estrogen that's being created is not, it's been absorbed back into the blood and that's causing the heat surge. So would you look at other things as well alongside of um, maybe exhaustion or being a mum or whatever? There could be other factors, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And heat is definitely one of them. Having your body core temperature, assisting it to stay cool is a really valuable thing you can do. You can buy cool mats that you can sleep on um, or just keeping a fan on in your room, not having too many covers in your bed. But obviously with menopause, that heat is going to fluctuate. Um, but just trying, it's really just trying to be a bit curious about your sleep. And rather than feeling like you're defeated, to really just take this curious approach of, well, how can I really just try and discover more about what it's like for me? And if I adapt something, how does that work? And if that doesn't work, I try another thing. You know, what works for one won't work for everybody. 
Um, but it, it's, it's trying to take some of the fear away from sleep because it's whilst we're fear, fearful and worried about going to bed, we're really stopping um, our brain from being able to turn off. And so that can often just be the very first point is just being able to be um, find some capacity to meditate or being mindful or just have a hot bath and relax and um, just sit with the people that we love and have a conversation rather than being on a device. So it, it can be as simple as just allowing yourself time to investigate. Davinia, you have been a wealth of knowledge and information and I think also inspiration. Oh, thank you, ladies. That's lovely. <laughs> no, you really have. You've given us so much food for thought and I think in some cases... Sleep for thought. Oh, sleep for thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's going to... Karen slip the whole way through it. <laughs> 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 Good on you. I support that. So, <laughs> oh, actually, it's after three o'clock. No, <laughs> it's my nap time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've all lost it. <laughs> Kim, Kim does that to us, Davinia. Oh, she just makes a comment, and we lose and it. That's the end of it. I love it. <laughs> Laughter is very good for sleeping as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Laughter is good for everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies. It has been. It's been really, really insightful. And I think part part of what I'm loving about today's podcast, and we kind of start where we end and top and tail in that, you know, when it comes to the neurological aspect of um, the health of the body, to think that the two are separate is a little bit, I think, I, I think it's a little self-destructive. Mm. Whereas if we're able to link the mind and the body and then, of course, you know, the next conversation could potentially be the soul. But I think if we can link the mind and the body together, what you're talking about here today is that even the way that we set ourselves up to sleep, the way that we set ourselves up to eat, we can really bring the mind into um, and our thought systems into taking greater control over our behaviour and our choices. So thank you for all of your tips and thank you for all of your insights. It's been absolutely awesome. Well, thank you for having me, ladies. It's just been a pleasure just talking about what I love and just having you lead the way with some really um, interesting questions. So I hope I answered them adequately. (laughs) Oh, you were amazing. Now, before we go, Divinia, is there any way that our listeners can reach out to you if they want to um, follow you or find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the easiest way to contact me is by email. And my email is, do you want me to tell you my email? Yes. Yeah, sure. So it's Davinia, D-A-V-I-N-I-A at I exceed, which is I E X C double E D dot com dot AU. So my business is called I exceed, and you can find me on Facebook as I exceed dot com dot AU. And I post, uh, and I'm on Instagram as well, but I like to just post a lot of tips and tricks and health things. Um, and stories. I love just telling stories and just teaching people through insights about my life and what I've learned and putting some education in there as well. So hopefully that it, it might 
um, help people just from some of the things I put on there. And is that your name? That is the Instagram? Instagram is IXSeedRC, actually. Oh, I, we're not looking it up. You should see it. <laughs> I-E-X-C-E-E-D-R-C is my Instagram. Oh, oh there it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, we found her. Yeah, beautiful. Wonderful. Awesome. We're all following. Oh, lovely. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> well, Davinia, thank you so, so very much. And I hope that our listeners have absolutely loved today's podcast show. Thank you for being a part of it with us. Thank you. So for all of our listeners, head on over to our Facebook page at allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and you can post your comments and your questions there. Also, you can post your comments and your questions at allthews.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. So join us here next week on Up for a Chat and become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the hike. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day. And here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.